All right, open your Bibles to Matthew 26 this morning. Matthew 26, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under a chair in the row in front of you, page 1057, page 1057. Have you ever been troubled, greatly troubled, sorrowful to the point of death? I mean, have you ever been so grieved, so heartbroken that you have contemplated suicide, contemplated ending your own life, or feeling like your life was going to come to an end, overwhelmed with that grief? In that moment, what did you do? In that moment, where did you turn? We, almost everyone here, I'm sure, is aware of what happened. I believe it was Tuesday with the school shooting there in Texas. And it's hard to fathom the grief and pain and loss. Uh, I try not to think about it. Um, I've got an 11 an year old and a nine year old, and the kids that were murdered, I believe, are all 10 years old, fourth graders. It's just unbelievable grief and sorrow. Where do those parents turn? What is their hope in death? Not their death, but the death of their children. What, what is their hope? Where do they turn? If you had an opportunity to talk to them, what would you say? If I had an opportunity to preach in that town, Uvalde, Texas, I believe that's how you say it. Texans say weird things, weirdly. I believe... I would preach the very same message I was planning to preach this morning. God's word is sufficient. It speaks. It speaks to all of life in ways that we sometimes don't understand or don't see. And so I want you to think about what would you say to those folks because some of you have known people who've lost children, whether it's that circumstance or other circumstances. Some of you have lost children. Where do you turn with this kind of grief? Did you turn? Will they turn? Will we turn to a God who truly understands, who's been through this very thing? Great trouble, sorrowful to the point of death. And connected to that, I want to bring out the fact of how important is prayer to us as Christians. How important is prayer? So there's a couple of themes we're going to see traced through this passage of Scripture. Before we dig in, let's pray together. Father, you must work. We need you. Must have you in this moment. Your spirit must do his work or nothing will be accomplished. So we ask you to use your spirit to take the gospel of the word of God and to drive it home to every heart that we would be transformed and that souls who are lost would be saved. They would come to understand Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and death. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Matthew 26, we're going to start in verse 31. I will read 31 through 46. Please follow along. Then Jesus said to them, as his apostles, his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. 
Then Jesus went with them to, the, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the, the, the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's divine revelation for us this morning. May we listen to it. The theme is this, King Jesus is the shepherd who drinks the cup of God's wrath. King Jesus is the shepherd who drinks the cup of God's wrath. This is the Passion Week, the week of Jesus' crucifixion. We saw last week in the passage preceding this that King Jesus is the sovereign Passover lamb. In our text this morning, the metaphor shifts, yet the primary focus is still the same. The Passover lamb, King Jesus, is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. The death of the lamb of God in fulfillment of the Passover is still the greater context, yet the metaphor changes. And from that shift, we have much to learn. And so let's dig in. The first thing we see are the shepherd's promises. The shepherd's promises. What is the first promise given by the shepherd? He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. The scripture must be fulfilled. Therefore, all the apostles will abandon Jesus. You will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, because it is written. It was written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Therefore, you will all fall away. Once again, Jesus makes a promise. Notice it's a promise about what is going to happen. So again, we see his sovereign control over every aspect of his own sacrificial death. Every step of the way has been determined by God. This is God's plan. It's the plan of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. It has been predetermined. The Bible uses the word predestined before the foundation of the world. And that is why all these prophecies can be made. Zechariah 13, verse 7. And that is why all these prophecies must be fulfilled. Because this is God working out his plan. And when God has a plan and he knows his plan and he's working out his plan, he can tell you his plan as far in advance as he wants. A thousand years, two thousand years, or thirty-five minutes. And when he gave it to you two thousand years ago, and then he says, in a couple of hours, this is going to happen, it doesn't matter. It's still in advance, and he's in control. Our God is sovereign. He is seated on his throne, 
and God was on his throne when Christ died on the cross. In control of every aspect. That's what we see. So Jesus is not, as some skeptics try to claim, reading the Old Testament for messianic prophecies and then trying to manipulate circumstances to fulfill them. People actually float that as an idea. Like Jesus is like trying to be the Messiah, so he's scouring the Old Testament to find all the prophecies and then trying to fulfill them. The problem was that the Jews of that day didn't see Zechariah 13.7 as a prophecy pointing to the Messiah. Necessarily, it points first of all to the nation of Israel, and then it points further on. But, but that's the point. He's not trying to fulfill these things. He's not trying to figure these things out. He's telling them what is going to happen because it must happen. And he's telling them so that they will know and we will know that he was in control all along. Nothing is happening outside his control. Now, this is going to be very, very important. You need to get that settled because in a few verses, it's going to become very important. But I also want you to notice that this promise is a warning. It's a warning. You must be prepared for temptation. If someone came to you today and said, you are going to fall into sin this week, what would you do? You are going to rebel against God, deny Christ, sin, and just pick a sin. You're going to sin this week. What would your response be? This is the question. Is that not, is that promise not also a warning? I mean, isn't it great to know that you're going to do something in advance? What would your response be? Think about that. So notice that's the first promise. The second promise, he says, I will be resurrected. And he doesn't say that in those exact words, but he says, after I am raised up, that's what he's talking about, the resurrection, after I'm raised up. So how many times does Jesus say this? How many times does he refer to this? And still his apostles are surprised when it happens. The reason is they don't fully believe. They don't fully agree. They have been told, they've been told, and again they're told. But I don't want us to be harder on them than we are on ourselves. Does it sound familiar? Time and time and time and time again, God tells us things and we don't fully believe. We don't fully obey. So uh, we, we're no better. We wouldn't have done any better. And so the lesson is not how we could have been better than the apostles. The lessons are how bad are we just like the apostles. So just catch that. That's, the, that's one of the applications. But notice he says, not only will he be raised up, but then he will go before them to Galilee. He tells them that they will be scattered, but notice he tells them that they will be gathered. He's going to go before them. The scattering isn't permanent, just as his death isn't the end. The glory of the resurrection is that death isn't the end. He's going to die and I will be raised, and I will go before you to Galilee. You will be scattered, but then you will be gathered. Death is not the end for the Christian. For the follower of Christ, death doesn't mean things are over. It means the best part is just beginning. And so we see this glorious word. Hear these words this morning of comfort and encouragement. We sang them, words of comfort and encouragement, in the face of death. Our death and the death of others, hear the words of comfort and encouragement. But notice Peter's arrogance. Peter's arrogance, he said, though they all fall away, even if everyone else falls away, 
I will never fall away. <laughs> never say never. The earlier humility, when Christ brought up that he would be betrayed, the earlier humility of considering the possibility that he might be the one to betray Jesus is totally absent here for Peter. So he had humility earlier on, but now I see him as tremendously arrogant. And I also want you to see he believes that possibly everyone else might fall away. I kind of missed that. I forget what commentator said that. It's not that he says he'll never fall away. He says, even if everyone else falls away, like I'll stand alone. I mean, the rest of these guys, they might fall away. <laughs> I mean, the rest of these losers, I mean, you know these guys, right? I mean, they're not very strong. One of, you know, doubting Thomas, you know. I wonder if he was doubting before over some different things. These guys might fall away, but I'm going to stand. I mean, if you thought I was being too hard on Peter when I said he was arrogant, just focus in. Now, notice I'm not saying he's any worse than us. Notice that he believes even if everyone else falls away, he won't. What's Christ's response? Well, Christ gives another promise. Be careful about talking back to God. You might not want to hear his response. It's kind of like when you talk back to your parents. It doesn't make things better usually. It just, you know, this whole idea that it can always get worse. It doesn't usually get any better, especially talking back. So what does Jesus promise? Before the rooster crows, you, Peter, Peter will deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, talking to Peter. And notice how he begins the, the promise. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, this is doubly guaranteed. You know, it's that verily, verily, I say unto you, Peter's failure will be the worst. Peter won't just desert Jesus as the other apostles will. He will deny him, and he won't deny him just once. He will deny him three times. Notice the promised specificity. Does Jesus know? Is Jesus God? He's telling him, you're going to deny, you're not going to just desert me, you're going to deny me, and you're going to deny me, I can't even say the word, deny me three times before the rooster crows. I mean, it is, it is so specific that we see God's hand in it. And this specificity demonstrates the deity of Christ and his complete knowledge. He knows all things. We sang about that. But I want you to see something else. It is also a mercy to Peter. Christ's specificity is a mercy to Peter so that when he hears the rooster crow, it triggers an immediate return to this very moment. And in that moment, it breaks him. He goes out weeping. He is broken. And what we need to realize about Peter when we see his arrogance is that Peter needs to be broken. This is good for Peter. This is important for Peter. Peter needs to be humbled. Jesus knows what is best for him. And in his grace, he gives them him the very lesson that he needs. In our arrogance, God's grace will humble us. But you know, humbling is not easy. Being broken is not easy. So it's not, it's a mercy, but it's not an easy mercy. It's a very, very difficult lesson. But notice then Peter's argument. Peter's argument. He was arrogant. He spoke in arrogance. Now he argues with Jesus. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Not only will I not desert you, I will not, never fall away. I won't even deny you. Even if I have to die. 
Here is Peter arguing with Jesus Christ. He argues with his Lord and Messiah. And what is even worse is that his response draws out the same response in the other apostles. Notice he's not the only one who says the same thing. He's not the only one who's arrogant. He's not the only one arguing. Yet Peter is the leader, for good or for bad. Leaders lead. And it doesn't always mean it's good. And so Peter's leading. He's leading them all in the wrong place, in the wrong response. He has great influence, and because of that, Peter needs this to be humbled, not only for his own sake, but for the sake of others. Leaders need humbling more than anyone else needs humbling because of their influence. If his arrogant arguing is contagious, then by God's grace, his humility will also be contagious. Peter will either be a leader in arrogantly arguing with God or he'll be a leader in humbling himself before God. Let me ask you, are you in the habit of arguing with God? <laughs> arguing with God? Arguing with God lately? How could you do this? No, I disagree. No, that's not the right thing. Why are you doing this to me? You shouldn't be doing this to me. I don't deserve anything like this. I mean, do we not argue with God? Way more often than we'd want to admit out loud. Arguing with God? Do you arrogantly think that you know better than God? I mean, if you didn't think you knew better than God, then why would you be arguing with him? See, I don't want to admit, see, no one wants to admit this, but this is where our struggle is. We are like Peter. Let me ask you, on the other side of this, have you ever been broken by God? Have you ever been humbled? I mean, really humbled? You know, the word humiliated comes from the root word humbling. Have you ever been humiliated? If it's the right kind of humiliation, it's very good for your humbling. Notice what the Bible says. Notice what Christ has already said. Matthew 23, verse 12, Peter heard it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What's Peter doing? Even if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away. I will never deny you. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? One betrays, one denies, one deserts and denies, or denies and then deserts. You can only go two different ways. Well, here's the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter repented. Peter repented. And in his restoration, he learned this lesson, the lesson of Matthew 23. He learned this lesson very well. Notice what he writes, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Peter writes this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Do you notice the connection between this verse, what Peter's saying here, and Matthew 23? Did Peter learn it? He learned it. He got it. He's an example to us now in his humility because he learned God's lesson here in his denial. 
So when you are arrogant and God humbles you, don't respond the way Judas responded by killing himself, by running away from repentance, but repent and return to the Lord and serve him. God wants to transform you and grow you, and in your sinfulness, he needs to transform you. And so when you are humbled because you've been arrogant, repent. God will forgive, he will restore, and he will use you as you serve him. And if, if you're a leader, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're an el- leader elsewhere than inside the church, you will need this lesson far more than anyone else. Matthew Henry warns, those are least safe that are most secure. Ouch. How secure was Peter? Was he absolutely convinced? And at that moment when he is saying these things, he is the most, he's in the most dangerous position. He's least safe because he is most secure. So learn this from Peter's life. Apply it to your life. It's much easier to learn the lessons through others than for God to have to teach it to you personally. If you're not the oldest, you were blessed by God. Why? Because you had someone to learn from. If my older brother ever listens to this message, he will hear me say what i said many times. I learned many things from watching my older brother blow it. Blew it numerous times in numerous ways. By God's grace, he's been restored. <laughs> but he, he, he did so many foolish things, and I watched it. I watched how things went. And I said to myself, even as a little kid, how little, I can't remember, I'm old. But I was little, and I remember saying this, don't make that same mistake. Don't make that. doesn't mean I didn't make my own mistakes and I didn't learn everything I should have learned. But it was far easier for him to sin against my parents, for him to bear the consequences, and for me to sit over here and learn the lesson I didn't have to go through. That's a far easier lesson to learn. But let me give you the grace of God. If you won't learn from others, God will teach you personally. If you won't learn from Peter, God will teach you. He's not going to leave you the way, leave you alone. So just... Understand God's grace can come in multiple ways. One grace is learning from others in the scripture. But if you won't learn that way, God is gracious. He'll teach you through personal lessons. Which way do you want it? You pick. Door number one, door number two. But God in his grace, if you're his child, he will teach you one way or the other. That's the shepherd's promises. Secondly, we see the shepherd's prayer. The shepherd's prayer. And the first thing we see in the shepherd's prayer is the circumstances. So before we get to the prayer, I want you to see the circumstances of his prayer. Why does Jesus pray? It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. His soul is very sorrowful unto death. The words here, it's hard to describe this kind of sorrow. This is crushing sorrow. This is the heaviest weight of sorrow that we can put into words. This is the kind of sorrow that Jesus is under. He is Greatly troubled. He is very sorrowful. His sorrow is crushing him. Why? Why is he so sorrowful? Because he is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath. I want you to hear those words. He is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath. He is about to drink the punishment for every sin of every one of his people. The punishment of every sin of every person who trusts in him will be poured out on him and he will drink it all down. 
This is Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, coming to fruition. Where it's prophesied about this shepherd, about the lamb, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, man of sorrows, here it is, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, we thought he was despised for what he did. People see Christ hanging on the cross as despised, as rejected, as, as, a, as a wicked man, as a sinner, as a criminal. But no, he was not despised for his sin. It's because surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Who's our? Who are the our there? God's people. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Was he stricken and smitten by God and afflicted? Yes, who pours out their wrath on the Son? The Father does. Now, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but we esteemed him that way for the wrong reason. But, conflict, comparison, we thought, again, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for his sins, but no, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of whom? Us all. This is the fulfillment of that. And Christ is about to be there. He's one, not even one full day away. And the weight of the wrath of God, the cup he's about to drink, is weighing on him, sorrowful to death. We saw last week in the Lord's Supper in the fulfillment of the Passover, that his people, we, the people of God, drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. He drinks the cup of God's wrath for all our sin. We drink the cup of celebration only because he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. God is saving us from God. The Lamb of God takes all the wrath of God the Father on the sinners. He stands in our place. He goes between. He takes the, our punishment. This is the gospel being lived out. Why? Because God is a God of wrath. People today, they, everyone wants to believe in God, the God of love. And, and our God is a God of love. The Bible's clear. But he's also a God of wrath, and you need to see that. So let me take some time, take a little bit of an aside, but I hope to make a clear point. God is a God of wrath. He's a God of wrath on his own people. He was a God of wrath on the nation of Israel. So in Psalm 78, some of you read Psalm 78 this week in the Bible Reading Challenge. And reading it in anticipation of the sermon, I saw a lot of God's wrath. What does it say? Psalm 78, 21 and 22. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because, notice because, they did not believe in God, did not trust in his saving power. God was angry with his people. He was full of wrath. Notice also Psalm 78, 49, he was, had wrath on the Egyptians. You can study the context. He let loose on the Egyptians his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels, talking about the angel of death and the, all of the plagues that came. Notice again, later on in the same Psalm, more wrath on Israel, Psalm 78, 59 to 62. When God heard, he was Again, full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and he delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. 
God is a God of wrath. And you need to know that. Because God is angry with sinners, Israel, Egypt. And he's not just angry in the Old Testament. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is very angry. Well, let's go down to the Old Testament. I'll do the rest of the verses in the New Testament. Okay, sound good? Let's see if it, if it bears out. So, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against not just the Jews, not just the Egyptians, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is angry with sinners. Are you a sinner? Hold on to that thought. Romans 2, verse 5. So Paul makes, uh, he's building a case in, in the book of Romans, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're a sinner, if you're rebelling against God and your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath on the day of wrath. There's wrath coming for every sinner. In case you think it's just the book of Romans, well, before we get out of Romans, Romans 2, verse 8. Next one, you had it? Romans 2, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's just three verses in two chapters of the New Testament. Where is that God of love I was looking for? Well, it's not just the book of Romans. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 2, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the bad news, terrible news. You were born a child of wrath because you were born a sinner. You were born with the sin nature under the curse of Adam, bearing the sin of Adam and bearing your own sin. You're a child of wrath. God's wrath, if you're not a Christian, abides on you right now. It's that idea that Jonathan Edwards talked about where it's just a, it's, there's different ways of, of illustrating it. I just say that there's, there's, this, there's this huge weight of God's wrath hanging by a thread and every sinner who's not trusted in Christ sits underneath it and all it takes is one little break and that wrath of God will come crashing down on you forever. That's the picture. That is the worst news possible. And notice what else he says in Ephesians. Ephesians 5 verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. People will say, no, God is a God of love. God forgives. He will accept all his children in heaven. All the people in the world are God's children, and they're all going to make it to heaven, and all of these things will be fine, and God loves everyone. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, you can read Ephesians 5 and see the context, because of all this list of sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is bad news. If you're a son of disobedience, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not taking him as your only treasure, if he's not your hope in life and death, then God's wrath is just waiting. Terrible news. Terrible news. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. They are lying to you. If you're a son of disobedience, not a son of righteousness, the wrath of God will come upon you for all of eternity. But... I'm not going to leave you with the bad news. Let me tell you the good news. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 9, Since therefore you have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. 
Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who take him as their only savior, they will be justified. That word means declared righteous by his blood, by dying on the cross. They will be justified, declared righteous. And when you're declared righteous by trusting in Christ alone, then what happens to God's wrath? The wrath that was on you goes where? It's on Christ. That's Isaiah. He takes the wrath of God in your place. And so what are you, what happens to you who trust in Christ? You're saved from God's wrath. Who saves you? Jesus saves you because he steps in between. He takes it for us. You're saved. So the good news is, is that there's solution to the wrath of God. The problem of you being a sinner and the wrath of God on you is now taken care of in Christ alone. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're delivered by the son who dies, by the son who rises. Jesus Christ is delivering us. Why? Because he's drinking the cup of God's wrath on the cross. He pays the full penalty. He takes God's wrath on you. He takes your place. And look at the result. In this is love. Now we finally found love. Oh, praise God. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Oh, wait a second. But that he loved us. And in his love, what did he do? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's that word propitiation mean? Very important. Satisfaction. He sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. Christ satisfies all the wrath of God on the cross. Every bit of punishment that you would have borne in hell for eternity, he takes it all in three hours. For you and for every one of his children, for all of history, for all of time, millions, maybe someday billions of people, sin, the wrath of God is poured out. We cannot begin to understand the wrath of God. We see the cross and we see the blood and we see the crown of thorns and we see the beating and we see the pain and we think that's the problem. We think that's the problem. So when a Roman Catholic makes a movie about the cross, it emphasizes the blood and gore and the physical pain of the crucifixion, which was horrific. It was done on purpose, and it was terrible. But far, far greater, not even in comparison, was the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of the cup of God's wrath poured out on his only begotten, his only loved son for us. For us. My sin, his sorrow, he drank the cup of God's wrath for my sin so that I can be saved from the wrath of God, never to be condemned, never to be punished for any one of them. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah. That's the good news. You can be saved from God's wrath. By trusting in Christ alone. Take him as your Lord. Take him as your Savior. Believe in him. Follow him. And you will be saved from the wrath of God. Because there's more. The book of Revelation gives us some final warnings. Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. Think You think, well, some people are going to be exempt. No. Oh, good, God's going to get all those rich people, all those politicians. They're all going to get it. 
And everyone, oh, slaves too, and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. The wrath of the lamb, this is the wrath of Christ. So the savior sits on the throne and when he returns, he brings his wrath on sinners. The wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath is coming. Who can stand? There's a day of wrath coming. The warning is to avoid that day of wrath by trusting in the Lamb because if you reject the Lamb, you deny the Lamb, you run from the Lamb, you hate the Lamb, He will bring wrath, not love. He will bring wrath, not justice. That is justice. He'll bring wrath, injustice. He will condemn you, the very Son of God dying on the cross. That's why the atonement is very particular. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, hear the warning. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. Notice the comparisons. Cup, drink. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they, next slide, have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Don't get caught up in the mark of the beast. Don't get caught up in the end times. Get caught up in the understanding of the wrath of God poured out on those who reject the Lamb of God. And your, God's wrath will be poured out on you for eternity and, and the torment of that wrath, the pain and suffering will go up forever and ever. This is terrible news. At the same time, the most terrible news, the the greatest warning comes, the best news you will ever hear. And I do not want, I'm not trying to scare anybody into a false profession of faith in Christ. I'm warning you of the wrath that is there now, the wrath that is to come, and I'm telling you there's a solution to God's wrath. And that's why Christ is sorrowful unto death because he's going to drink the full cup of God's wrath for his people. You need to see it. As Christians, you need to rejoice in it. And if you're not a Christian, trust in Christ and that rejoicing will be yours today. Letter B, the content of his prayer. What does he pray? Before we get to what he prays, we need to say who he's praying to. So what does the father, what does the son say? He prays to the father, my father, my father. Notice the full Trinitarian implications of those two words. Modalism is destroyed. God the Son is praying to God the Father. God the Son is not praying to himself. One God, three persons. Notice also Jesus has just demonstrated his divine knowledge. And now we see his full humanity. Divinity and humanity in one person fully. 100% man, 100% God in one person. So we saw his divinity, he proved it, and now we're seeing his full humanity on display. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass if it is possible. Who wants to take this wrath on themselves in your body, dying, being crushed? Jesus knows what is coming. He knows in a way we don't know. And if there's any other way to save his people from their sins, if there's any other way to redeem them, then let's do that. Because in his humanity, he knows the pain. So he knows what's coming. Not just the physical pain, taking all of the wrath of God spiritually, physically. And so then notice the second thing he says, not my will, but your will be done. In his humanity, he knows what's coming. 
He knows what he's going to face, yet he submits to the Father's will in everything. Not because he's less than the Father, but because he and the Father are one in will. And here he submits to the Father because Jesus, as God, is not a rogue deity doing his own thing. I and the Father are one, one in will, one in purpose, one in mind, one in heart, and yet they are separate persons. And so as a separate person from the Father, the Son cannot just do his own thing. Then we have God against God, and that cannot be. Notice also, let her see the command to pray. So what does he tell them before he goes to pray? It says, watch with me, verse 38, watch with me. He commands them to stay awake. That's what the word watch means, stay awake with him. But he has already told them what he will be doing. He's already said, I'm going to pray. And so what does this imply about what they should be doing? They should stay awake and pray. Stay awake and pray. When he comes and finds them sleeping, he's more specific. Verse 41, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Jesus, the good shepherd, is concerned for his sheep. Even in these final moments as he faces the cup of God's wrath, he's still caring for his own people. Amazing. He's very sorrowful, but he's still caring for others. Now, what should the apostles be praying for? What should Peter, James, and John be praying for? So many see them not supporting Jesus and not praying for Jesus. They think, just when Jesus needs their support the most, they don't give it, but instead they fall asleep. They think that Jesus Christ is complaining that they're not supporting him in his moment of grief. I disagree completely with that understanding. I don't see it that way at all. I see Christ teaching them something very important, another very valuable lesson. Christ will overcome temptation through prayer, and they will succumb to temptation at least partly through lack of prayer. What is Jesus doing? He is watching and praying. Why is he watching and praying? Why does he tell them to watch and pray as well? Because he needs comfort? No, because they need to watch out for temptation. Just because it was ordained by God that they will give in and desert him doesn't mean that the means are unimportant. The ends of their deserting Christ doesn't mean that their lack of prayer is unimportant. So what should they be doing? They should be praying for victory over the temptation to deny Jesus for fear of suffering. Watch and pray. Notice what he says, verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He doesn't say watch and pray that you can be a comfort to me. Watch and pray that you, so you can help me in my moment of suffering. He says watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Why is Christ watching and praying? He's been tempted before, has he not? Do we not see the temptation in this moment for the Son of God? So notice what he says. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into, enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but what is weak? The flesh is weak. Why would the apostles be tempted to abandon Jesus, desert him? Why would Peter be tempted to deny? Why would they be afraid of suffering because the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
How about your flesh? Are you strong in the flesh? You would never deny. You would never abandon. You would never desert, would you? Because you're so strong? Notice, whose flesh is this? He's talking about their flesh, but whose flesh is he also talking about? Is Jesus not flesh? Is he not fully human? Is he not under great stress and sorrow and suffering? Is he not bearing that weight as a man, a full man, just like you and I are men and women? Human flesh is weak. In our humanity, we are frail. I think we sang it twice in the songs this morning. We are frail and weak. We are frail and weak. Why? Because we're human. And Jesus was human. His flesh is frail and weak. And notice, this is not an excuse. <laughs> Why did you sin? Well, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, what, what do you expect? We're sinners. Sinners sin, you know, so what can I do? That is not what Christ is saying. It's not an excuse. It's a warning and an incentive to do what? Pray. Why? Because your flesh is weak. You say, well, my flesh is weak. Well, what are you doing about that? Well, I'm just sinning all the time. Your flesh is weak. Therefore, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice what Jesus is doing. He is praying for the same reason. In his humanity, he feels suffering like we do. In his humanity, he fears pain just as we do. Does Jesus know what deadly suffering and deadly sorrow is? Does he understand sorrowful to the point of death? Does he understand great grief? Does he understand what you have gone through? Does he know what you are going through? Has he felt it himself? And the answer is, he has. He has. Notice a great promise from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable. Notice the double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Which this means is, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has gone through it all, therefore he can sympathize with every fleshly weakness we have because he's lived it. And in the garden, we see it most clearly, most explicitly. In his humanity, he is suffering. He is under great sorrow. He knows. And in his humanity, he is tempted just as we are to do what is painless and easy. He is tempted to do what is painless and easy. He's tempted to walk away from God's will to avoid the sorrow, to avoid the suffering, to avoid the pain. He is tempted. How does he overcome temptation? By being God? We see the temptation of Christ and we think because he's God in his divinity, he overcomes temptation. No, in his humanity, he submits to the will of the Father. He prays, he, he quotes scripture. He, he overcomes temptation the same way we do. There's great hope here. He defeat, defeats this temptation not by relying on his deity, but by trusting in God in prayer, just as we must. We can defeat temptation by relying on God in prayer. It is possible in the Holy Spirit's power for you to not sin today. It is possible. You can watch and you can pray and you can over, tem, overcome temptation, not because the flesh isn't weak, but because God will strengthen you for the task. So why aren't the disciples praying? Why aren't they praying? 
Because in their arrogance, they don't take Jesus' promise seriously. He promised them they're going to desert him. And if you heard that promise and you heard that warning, what should you be doing in the garden? God, may I never desert, may I never deny. Why isn't Peter crying out to God to do something different, to help him, to strengthen him? Because he doesn't believe what God says. He's arrogant and he won't pray. Why don't we pray? Well, you know, it's hard. It's hard to build a habit. You know, pastor, you know, it's, I got a lot of things to do. Got some TV shows I've got to watch. I've got to go to work. We have to cook dinner, you know. Is that why we don't pray? Because of our scheduling? Because of our troubles? Or do we not pray because we arrogantly believe we can overcome temptation in our own strength? We do not watch. We do not pray. And we fall into temptation. And we don't learn from the examples in the scripture. They sleep. They sleep in arrogant confidence. He's just hours away from denying Christ three times. And what is he doing? I got this. Let me take a nap. Now, he's exactly tired. It's late, around midnight. Of course, we're tired. I'm not saying that he was sleeping because he was lazy. He's sleeping because he's physically tired. But there was more important things to do. And in his arrogant confidence, he sleeps. And Jesus knows human frailty far better than we do. And he tells us, watch and pray, because he's watching and praying. So in conclusion, escape the wrath of God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to pay the penalty for your sin. If you're not a Christian, you can escape the wrath of God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to pay the penalty for your sin, the full penalty, the full wrath, all your sins forgiven. There will therefore be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not have to face one minute, one second, one nanosecond of punishment for your sin if you trust in Jesus Christ. Christian, be alert for temptation and persevere in prayer because of the strength of temptation and the weakness of our humanity. Be alert for temptation and persevere in prayer because temptation is strong and our flesh is weak. Father, drive these truths home deep into our souls, deep into our hearts. It is clear, Lord, from your scripture that Peter is not the only arrogant one. The other apostles aren't the only arrogant ones. Lord, we are arrogant. We have great confidence in our flesh, in our human abilities, when we should have no confidence in the flesh. We must watch and pray. And Lord, we do not watch. And Lord, we do not pray like we should. And therefore, we should not be surprised when we fall into temptation. Make us a people who watch, who pray, who prepare, who do battle. We might serve you. I thank you for your restoration for those who repent. And so, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for our prayerlessness. We ask forgiveness for our watchfulness, and we pray that you would restore us as we confess our sins and turn from our sins to follow you more wholeheartedly, even today, even this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.